Welcome to podcast number three of Practical Wisdom from ACP Financial Advisors, a monthly program about creating and operating a successful financial planning practice. We're a presentation of the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners, known as ACP, a community of tax-focused financial advisors operating under a unique retainer-based fiduciary business model. I'm your host, Ken Robinson. On our show today, seven ACP core concepts. We in ACP have a particular way of looking at a household's financial planning. True, the 100-plus practices that apply the ACP model work with many different kinds of clients, and to better serve those clients, virtually all of these practices have customized ACP's model to some extent. So what is it that we share in common whether we're solo or multi-advisor firms, whether we prepare our clients' taxes or not, whether we serve middle-income or more affluent households, whether we're number crunchers or life planners. There are different answers to the question of why our members feel like a particularly tight-knit community, and among them are what we call ACP's seven core concepts, seven different features of how we approach financial planning for our clients. To introduce us to these seven core concepts, our guest today is the man who first developed them, Bert Whitehead. In 1995, Bert first taught his system of financial planning to four other professionals, launching what would eventually become the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners. Bert's the author of the book, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things With Money, which has just been released in its fifth edition. Bert, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So, Bert, tell us something about why you felt it was necessary to create a system that was a bit different from the way financial planning was being done. Most of the concept that we even use today in personal financial planning were really developed by the financial industry, primarily to sell products to consumers. And they're drawn from investment research and analysis using large financial institutions. I started developing these principles that are designed for real people in the early 70s because we differ from financial institution in three primary ways. First, real people live in houses. Second, real people have to pay taxes. Third, real people die. These three realities render much of the traditional investment and financial theory, which works well in in an institutional environment, inadequate when applied to personal financial planning. So let's get right into the seven core concepts. I think one of the most interesting is the first one, which is the endogenous versus exogenous approach. Tell us about that. Exogenous endogenous identifies financial planning issues that are within the client's control versus those not in the control of individuals and are therefore speculative, like interest rates and market performance. Well, this distinguishes good financial habits from speculative market timing. We're not market timers. We don't claim to beat the market. And instead, we emphasize the endogenous factors like 
what kind of a job you have, what kind of an education you get, to exogenous factors, which people have no control over. So the endogenous factors, they're things that are intrinsic to the client. The exogenous factors are somewhere out there that the client uh, can't control and really can't know with any certainty the way they can know about their own lives. Exactly. So we don't bother about whether the market's going to go up or down. Um, what we look at is how much debt do you have? Now, how much debt you have is something that's within your control. You don't control interest rates, but you do control how much you spend. With this focus on people being different from institutions, uh, that brings us to the second core concept, which is money personality. So tell us about money personality. Everybody has a different personality when it comes to how they handle and how they view money. And John Bogle, one of his famous sayings is that fear and greed have taken more money from people than has been taken at the point of a gun. And it's true, the emotions are often what drive people to make the wrong kinds of decisions. And it's kind of a a play between those two, and plus the reality of basic personality types that there are some people who are very inclined to spending money and other people who are, by their nature, savers. And so we look at the combination of those factors and divide it into many personalities And it's interesting that these cases often opposites attract. And I think when people look at what their money personality is, and particularly if they're in a relationship and they understand what their partner's money personality is, a lot of the disputes over how to to handle money can be better understood by understanding the different money personalities that are at play. So it sounds like money personality can show us how and why some couples end up arguing about money all the time. Exactly. And often money is the primary thing that many couples fight about. And at the core of it, it's because they really have different money personalities. The third core concept is risk analysis. And of course, risk analysis has been uh, a part of financial planning for a very long time. What's different about your view, Bert, of risk analysis? In our view, it differentiates risk tolerance, which is usually referred to in our industry. And this arose after the real estate debacle of the 70s and 80s, and people got into limited partnerships, which they should never have been in, and it cost the industry a lot of court settlements because they put them into investments that had too much risk. So inevitably, part of the current financial planning approach is to try to measure risk tolerance. And I think that's pretty absurd because 
risk tolerance from a psychological standpoint really can't be measured. And in working with our clients, it's not really the risk tolerance that we're looking for. I, I want to find out how much risk is appropriate for each client to take, given their own endogenous situation. So for example, I have a lot of entrepreneurs as clients, and when they come in the door, I don't need to do a risk tolerance test. I know they have a high risk tolerance because they have their own business. My job with that client is to help them build their portfolio and the rest of their financial structure so that it offsets the risk that they're taking in their business. We look to balance basically the situation of someone with a high risk tolerance. So it sounds like uh, a, a major difference is that while risk tolerance is asking uh, how much pain can you handle, risk analysis is asking what's appropriate for your unique situation. Exactly. So moving on to the fourth core concept of goal setting, again, something that uh, the financial planning industry has an understanding of, but what's the understanding that's better for the client? What's what's the understanding you want to have about goal setting? When I do goal setting with client, it frequently is a real turning point in their financial lives because it's preceded by analyzing where they are right now, how much they're saving, how much they're spending. We're looking at how much risk is really appropriate. We're trying to get their house in order. And then with the goal setting, we do a a visualization that says, okay, Ken, now tell me if if you do everything right and you don't make any mistakes and you get your share of the lucky breaks, how do you see your life then 10 years from now? And it helps people think through and set a future objective that they can actually be drawn towards so that financial planning doesn't become a process of deprivation. It's really a a process of enabling clients to create a vision for themselves that's realistic. It's based on what they actually have and what they're actually doing and taking it the next step. So your goal setting process is focused on what will make the client happy, not what's a feature of their financial life. And when that happens, they can tell when they've gotten there. Yes, and it's realistic objectives and realistic timetable. Something else that is noteworthy about it is that you've already got quite a lot of information and done quite a lot of analysis for the client when you're doing this kind of goal setting. It's not uh, happening in your first interview with the client before you have even learned anything about what's possible or reasonable for their financial situation. Exactly. It's, It's based on where they are now and assuming that they make the changes that are necessary So as people are going through their lives and the realities of their financial situation are changing as they make their way toward their goals, this brings up the idea of financial life cycle, which is the fifth core concept. Tell us about financial life cycle. 
After working with clients for a number of years, I realized that there is a life cycle that we go through and that it is important to measure personal financial progress. But then once people are self-supporting, for example, the first stage is the foundation stage where they build the key features like having adequate liquidity, saving 10%, funding their pensions, developing human capital, and buying a house, by the way. These are the things long range that are making a tremendous difference. And at the age of 30 or so, they move into the second adult stage, which is early accumulation stage. At this point, they have very little savings. And so they're, usually their net worth is one to three times their annual income. The next stage is interesting because at the rapid accumulation stage, and once a person or a couple has a net worth that's three times their annual income, and they're saving 10%, and they have diversified investments, then their investments will start earning more than they are saving every year. And at that point, their net worth mushrooms very quickly. And then at the other end, when do you let go? At what point do you have enough that you really can retire or do what you want to do? And sometimes that end of the cycle is more difficult for people to handle. Even I have people who are millionaires who cannot bring themselves to fly first class. And I tell them, if you don't start flying first class, your grandchildren will. But then in later years, allowing yourself to really enjoy the fruits of your labor. And there are different strategies to apply to different phases of the financial life cycle. And the, the benchmark of going from one phase of the financial life cycle to the next is uh, a relationship between earnings and wealth. So it's measurable. Exactly. And it's very important that the investment portfolio allocation is taking into consideration where a a person or family is in the financial life cycle. So this brings us to the sixth core concept, which is functional asset allocation. Of course, the concept of asset allocation is pervasive in uh, investment management and financial planning. Uh, But tell us about functional asset allocation. There's a lot of discussion about asset allocation among institutional investors. And it's always with the idea of what is the balance of stocks versus bonds that will produce the highest rate of return over the long term with the lowest experience of risk. And for real people, their house is a big investment, whereas traditional institutional investing only fixates on stocks and bonds. We look at three basic functions in asset allocation. And one of the functions is liquidity. And that's where we use cash and bonds. And that's where I recommend clients take the least amount of risk. 
my mantra is safety trumps yield. And within liquidity, it's much more important that the money be safe than that it produces the highest possible rate of return. The next function that we emphasize with clients is, and probably the most risky investment people can make, and it must be done very thoughtfully, is buying a home. This is one area where individuals are able to leverage. You can borrow money to buy a house from a bank at a fixed rate of interest for 30 years. It is such a tremendous advantage because it gives you the opportunity to stay with the house and build equity and your risk is fixed. And because if interest rates go up, you don't have to worry. You've got yours locked in. If interest rates go down, you just refinance at a lower rate. And this is such a tremendous advantage for like real people. And it's completely ignored in financial planning with institutions. And finally, with stocks. And I find that most people get over diversified, that they have too many little bits of emerging markets and Southeast Asia. You have really three functions in stocks. You have large cap, which are large companies with uh, usually long histories, small cap, which over time have been the ones with highest returns, but also have a very high failure rate, and international investments. And pretty much staying balanced within those keeps it from getting too complicated. And also it lends itself to a very effective tax location issues. And that is the subject of the seventh of our seven core concepts, the asset location strategy. So help us understand how keeping the investments simple and straightforward relates to the asset location strategy. Interest earning investments, which we use for immediate or eventual liquidity, generally we use tax-deferred accounts like pension accounts, life insurance, cash value, which can be efficient, but if you're paying an insurance salesperson's commission, it's a very expensive way to invest for that. And so we try to keep assets that are invested for liquidity all in tax-deferred accounts. So you don't have to pay taxes on it until you use them for living. The second is real estate, which as we discussed is a tremendously tax efficient vehicle because you're allowed a large amount of capital gains tax-free on the sale of the house. There's no other investment that you can make that has that wonderful tax advantage. And that is a key reason why homeowners end up being better off than people who rent all their lives. And it's completely ignored by institutional investors because it doesn't apply to them. And then finally, stocks. I like to keep large cap stocks and manage them so that you're able to take all of your losses short term, which enables them to be 
deducted sooner or offset losses and to let the capital gains ride. And eventually, if people are philanthropically inclined, then you don't have to pay tax on the capital gain. And you can still get a tax deduction for the full amount of the charitable contribution. This fits into an important tax strategy we have today using Roth IRAs. And with Roth IRAs, although you pay taxes on the funds that you transfer from a regular IRA to a Roth IRA, the taxes have to be paid at that time. The money then grows completely tax-free and you don't have to pay any taxes when you take it out. And so I like to have my Roth IRAs and small cap and international. And using this strategy, I have clients who have over a million dollars in investments and I'm able to maintain them in a 12% tax bracket because all of their liquidity issues are all tax deferred. We're using their real estate as a terrific tax hedge and we're coordinating their investments in equities so that we end up with the tax advantages of of large cap stocks and capital gains and have the riskier part of the stock portfolio for international and small cap in Roths, which are completely tax-free. When you think about this, and I've analyzed it, the amount of what we call tax alpha. There's no investment strategy that can produce the alpha or the tax advantage return on your investment as smart tax management. And for individuals, keeping the taxes foremost in the picture and dictating how to build a portfolio and how to manage a portfolio is much more important than trying to decide what stock's going to go up. It brings to mind a client who came to us recently uh, with traditional retirement accounts and Roth IRAs. And we found it interesting that their prior source of investment advice was suggesting exactly the same investments, both interest earning and equity, in their traditional IRAs and their Roth IRAs. And I don't know how to advise a client in that way. I often say that we don't know how to do investment advice without tax planning because the two are so deeply intertwined if you're going to try to apply any degree of logic to the tax treatment of investments you naturally end up in the asset location strategy. Uh, And isn't it interesting that it's becoming more and more obvious to more and more of the profession what you have been teaching for more than 20 years, Bert, and what you've been doing for your own clients for much longer than that. Let's take a minute to go back to uh, what you commented on at the outset as you pointed out Virtually all investment theory was based on institutions, and people behave differently than institutions do, that led you to these seven core concepts. 
every one of these is focusing on not how to squeeze another little bit of return out of an investment portfolio, but what works for someone who has to sleep at night. To me, that's what really sets apart these core concepts from some of the theoretical investment education that I got along the way. I remember when I was in your training class in January 2000, Bert, when uh, we were all introducing ourselves and explaining why we were there, uh, I said, uh, well, I've completed the CFP curriculum. I've got all this book learning. I just don't know how to apply it to real financial planning for real people, and that's why I'm here. And uh, the seven core concepts are a large part of taking that book learning, but really looking at it through the lens of what helps real people. And I think that these have gained credibility because people understand them, they recognize them, and they work in their lives. Yeah, I agree. None of this is esoteric and hard to understand. It's the sort of thing that when you explain them to the client, uh, they virtually always say, oh, well, that makes sense. And sometimes follow it up with, I wonder why I've never heard about that before. All right. Well, Bert, thank you so much for being with us. We, uh, we appreciate your joining us for the podcast today. You've been listening to Bert Whitehead, founder of the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners. Bert's book, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things with Money, has just been released in its fifth edition. Bert's website is bertwhitehead.com. There's a link in our show notes. This is podcast number three of Practical Wisdom from ACP Financial Advisors from the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners. ACP is a community of tax-focused financial advisors operating under a unique fee-only retainer model. For more than 20 years, ACP has trained advisors in the practices and tools of a comprehensive process rooted in the uncompromising values of fiduciary fee-only planning. Our members are pioneers and innovators who together have perfected a unique, retainer-based, tax-focused, comprehensive approach, providing a distinct alternative in the financial planning marketplace. ACP offers a lower-cost associate membership for those who want to learn and apply ACP's methodology prior to becoming certified members. For more information, call 910-769-1569 or visit acplanners.org. Mm-hmm.